Hello and welcome back to the EPL Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us at the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. Hi, I'm uh, Steve McGugan, longtime Spurs fan and uh, former chairman of the New York Spurs Supporters Club. I'm normally based in Belfast, but today I'm coming to you from Baltimore, where I've been witnessing the rebirth of the Orioles. I'm Koss. I'm a Man United fan. I'm the editor-in-chief at Get Italian Football News. I do cover Italian football and, yeah, cover bits of English football as well. Uh, my name is Thomas Nygren. I write about Liverpool for a Swedish website called lfcsv.se. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining me today, guys, on what is obviously a very joyous weekend, uh, the start of the Premier League. Um, I was just curious from you guys with this with this exciting weekend, what was the thing that you missed the most before it, and then what was your favorite moment during it? Well, I, I think, Kev, usually... It's always the case that once once the first weekend is over, you sort of instantly forget how long it had been since the end of the previous season. Uh, and, you know, if that ended well, you want to just keep that vibe going. And if it ended badly, then you want to try and, and start making things right as, as quickly as you can. And I, I think most teams fall into one category or the other. I think also what made the off-season go quickly this year was a really interesting transfer window right right across the league, but in particular among the top six clubs. And I think that's it's almost as if they've all realized collectively that this is going to be a crucial season uh, one way or another. Um, I mean, the fact that Spurs were proactive right from the start kept that story bubbling along, and, and, and it meant for the... For the first time in a good few years, that we were we were in a position to uh, to approach the start of the season with a with a genuine sense of optimism. I mean, even to the point where the conversation eventually turned into uh, whether we were setting too high a level of expectation for ourselves. But then I suppose that's that's just a typical Spurs narrative, isn't it? By this stage, uh, I mean, Conte has has been consistent and said that you know his aim is for the club to improve season by season and. Obviously, that's every manager's ambition, but I suppose it depends on <clears throat> on how you define that. Whether it's you know an improvement in your Premier League points total or uh, bringing bringing home some silverware finally. Uh, and I suppose for for a club like ours, where the supporters still ask each other, you know, what would you be satisfied with this season when when none of those aspirations have come to pass in recent years? And I think the uh, I think the important thing for us is just to uh, is just to not get ahead of ourselves and 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 absolutely just play each game as it comes. But you know, you have to say that the pieces seem to be in place in a way that they haven't been recently. And I suppose, like like everything else about the Premier League, that that comes down to to money. Uh, I mean, for example, if you look at Man United, you know they've spent over a billion pounds on players since Alex Ferguson left and 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 what was always going to be a tricky rebuilding process for for Ten Hag isn't going to be made any easier I think if they if they get off on the wrong foot this season or when you look at Spurs though the financial backing of Conte and uh, and and how Partici has been operating in the transfer market and it's going to be interesting to see how our scouting network outside of Italy operates from now on um, th- that all seems to suggest that the, the ownership <clears throat> knows that this is going to be a, a, a tipping point season, uh, one way or the other. And, and 
with more hanging on this year's outcome, I think, than in any of our recent seasons. Um, and I, I know you and I have talked about this before, but we're, we're inevitably going to get to a point where the discussion is going to be around, well, what if Potts had been backed after the Champions League final uh, the way that Conte is now? Well, you know, it's, it's a pointless discussion because he wasn't. And that, that was essentially the price that we all paid for, for overachievement back then. But the upside is, I think, it's not too late for... Um, for Levy, for Daniel Levy to realise and admit that he got things wrong. Uh, and when the Super League um, proposal collapsed, I think this sort of investment that we've seen uh, at the start of this season uh, to, to match the investment in the club's infrastructure uh, was really his only option at the end of the day if he wants to leverage the value of the club down the road. But again, you know, as if you look at every team in the Premiership, they all all have a storyline about their ownership that that can change as the fortunes on on the field change. So it's going to be interesting to watch over the uh, over the course of the season how the how the the ownership storyline changes for for each club. Uh, as for my favorite moment of of the weekend, we were just talking about this before uh, before uh, we went on on air. Uh, for me, it was it was Kulisevsky's cross uh, for Sessegnon's goal that brought us back to back level at one one, and I think the significance of that at that point in the game, in terms of restoring confidence, while uh, as we were saying about Harry and Sonny were misfiring at the time, I don't think that can be overstated. But uh, because after that, I really I had no doubt that we'd go on to to win. Um, I mean, Kulisevsky's second goal to round off the uh, round off the day was was a beauty uh, but as a turning point in the psychology of the game the the, the vision and the composure that he showed uh, in setting up the equalizer I think that was a far more important moment yeah and I think for me um, the part that I missed most about the Premier League was pretty much ranting about Man United and how bad they were uh, especially <laughs> last season because I think I th- I mean especially last season because I mean, last season was pretty, you know, a damning indictment to what Man United have become, in a way, because everything that happened last season, it just happened within a space of days. And a lot of fans, including <clears throat> including myself, couldn't really get the time to process it because it happened in, say, just 10 days, when actually, um, as a result of that, a lot of the fan base, a lot of the United fan base was divided. A lot of the fan base... Uh, turned into a Ronaldo sort of fan base where they were only after supporting a single player instead of supporting a club. Or they were uh, looking at what Mourinho did about five, six years ago and looking back towards it and looking up to the glory days. And there was a lot of toxicity on social media, um, especially because um, there were loads of uh, rumors and uh, news reports going on about how... Um, the dressing room situation is pretty bad, especially when uh, Oleg Gunnar Solskjaer was, was sagged pretty much, say, two weeks after that. Um, and there were a lot of intangibles to it, which um, stayed in the dressing room and which could never really come out. And I think as a result of that, a lot of United fans felt lost in a way where they could never really figure out what was going wrong. But it just went wrong in, in a matter of days. I mean, a lot of fans still can't process it. And they pretty much have the PTSD of what actually happened uh, when we finished second months later um, 
Soja got sacked when things were pretty merry about six months ago or so. So it's it's about, I think, just probably the fact that we lost once again. It gives me a chance to go back to that old habit of ranting once again, which I will probably do uh, in the next hour or so anyway. But I think the favorite moment of uh, the opening weekend, um, I think it was probably the Ryan Sessegnon goal, uh, largely because I, I'm a massive Antonio Conte fan because he's, he's Italian. And I was uh, tweeting that, uh, Emerson Royale is not a typical Antonio Conte fullback. And the very next moment, Ryan Sessegnon comes up with that sort of a header that Conte actually wants from his fullbacks to do because that's what he had at Inter and even at Chelsea. So I think that was a pretty fitting moment for the sort of football that Conte wants his teams to play. And I, since being a Conte fan, I really liked it. Uh, well, to be honest, FCA, I didn't miss the Premier League so much during off-season because uh, last season was uh, so special for Liverpool and I was exhausted after the Champions League final. We played in uh, three cup finals and was one point from winning the league. So I think I needed a break just as much as the players did. I needed some time to appreciate our season and uh, there was no time before the season was over because we played every three days for for a few months in the end. So I think uh, I think it was... Uh, good for many of our many of the Liverpool supporters to have a break from football and just sit down and appreciate what kind of season we we had because it was tough to lose two, uh, two big trophies in the final week but um, now a few months later i everybody have to see that it was an amazing season and i think we needed some time to really look at what we did and appreciate last season and uh, since we made our transfer business quite early on in the window, I could just sit back and uh, relax and uh, not be nervous about Liverpool for a while and just sit back and watch how the other teams were doing. Uh, but when the preseason started, I realized that I really missed the excitement before games that means something because I watched a few of the preseason games and it's, uh, of course, it's fun to see the young players and what they can do. But uh, it's not the same thing as when the Premier League starts and you feel the excitement a few hours before kickoff. Um, so I think I really missed, I have uh, missed watch us play. But uh, as I said, I think the break was good because uh, last season, even though it was a success, it was tough. And uh, even though we were successful, there were so many games in such a short period that it was, uh, I think it was hard to appreciate the situation. And um, Another thing that made me realize that it was the loss of Sadio Mane, because um, that was a reminder that uh, things come to an end and uh, it's important to enjoy it. We have so many of the players who Klopp has built this team around who are getting older. And um, I know for sure that, are, that I will miss them when they are gone. So even though I have been looking forward to see them play again, this will probably be the last season for one of my heroes, James Milner, and perhaps also Roberto Firmino. So even though I'm in one way looking forward to seeing them, it feels a bit emotional at the start of the season because we know that we will lose more of our heroes in the future. So I think it's a special time for Jürgen Klopp's Liverpool now because we're in a situation where we need to we need to kill kill up our darlings and uh, see a more uh, see younger players come in and it's uh, when we look back and see what those, these players have done for us it's uh, it's emotional to see them leave it was emotional to see Divock Origo leave as well so and we have a few of them left so th- 
will probably feel the same after this season. Uh, but um, when I watched Liverpool yesterday, I had a really hard time to understand why I had missed them. Because uh, the game against Fulham was one of the worst performances we've seen from a Klopp team in a long while. Um, Klopp has mentioned early on that uh, maybe this would be a part of the preseason, the first league games, but uh, it was not part of the preseason for Fulham, that was for sure. My favorite moment of the game was when Darwin Nunez scored. Even though I'm confident that he will be a hit at Anfield, it was nice that he could uh, show that from the start. Apart from that, the game against Fulham was more of a reminder of how hard it can be to be a football fan sometimes. Yeah, really well said by all three of you there. I figure we should probably just dive in more into what happened this weekend with a little bit more uh, detail and maybe looking outside of our clubs a little bit. Uh, what were some of the most surprising results to you? Which team impressed you the most? Who do you think might struggle? Just recap the weekend for me in those three particular aspects. Well, for, first off, I, I share Thomas's excitement at, at just the season being back. And uh, it, it, it must be hard for a Liverpool fan to come off a season like that and the expectations being so high of you know moving up to the next level or taking that to the next level or just sustaining the sort of performances um that you know that some of the the games that they saw last last season i mean obviously you know it, it's only one game so you can't extrapolate uh the way some people are already doing from from the fulham liverpool result and uh, that's just nonsensical and all, especially because you, you kind of always expect one or other of the promoted teams to be psyched up enough to pull off a really good result, especially especially if their opening game is at home. Uh, we see that every year, every at the start of every season. And and obviously Bournemouth's uh, win against Villa, I think, falls into that category too. And it, it's good to see Scotty Parker, uh, you know, hit the hit the ground running at least for, at least for now. We'll see how. <clears throat> we'll see how they go um, uh, through the through the season. As for a surprising result, I, you know, with respect, I don't think Brighton winning at Old Trafford was really that much of a surprise to anyone who who watched Brighton last season, uh, or anyone who knows, you know, how Graham Potter has progressed as a tactician. Um, I, I, I think what people need to remember. Uh, is that on on any day, any team can beat any other, and it's really only one. Once you get, say, I, I think 10 or 12 games into the season where you can see that teams are making similar mistakes over and over again, that you can actually say that they are going to struggle. Um, I mean, the most the, the most important stat for me is goal difference because it doesn't lie. Uh, and if your team is carrying a, a grossly overblown negative goal difference, then it, it means that there are problems at both ends of the field. Um, and, and I think by the time you get to Christmas, it's probably a pretty reasonable indicator of, of who might end up in trouble. So obviously, after one game, I don't think we can uh, we can draw any conclusions for um, for how the table might look next week. Yeah, I think um, as far as the most surprising result is concerned, I, I mean. I'm not mentioning the United result because, honestly speaking, that was not a massive surprise considering the sort of business that United have done this summer. So I think the most uh, surprising result was probably um, the uh, the Aston Villa game and the Bournemouth Aston Villa game. And I think uh, just moving on to the second question as well because I think um, Villa, the sort of team which I'm not, re I've not, never really been, been sure about since the beginning of last season, not just since Gerard came in. 
Um, that's because when they sold off Jack Grealish, uh, the sort of spending that they did, it was not, um, I couldn't really see a plan there uh, because right in the second game, Dean Smith had to change the formation from a 4-2-3-1 or a 4-3-3 to a 3-5-2 right away. And that pretty much told me that they're not signing players on the basis of a playing style or a system which has already been pre-decided. And after Gerard's come in, I think the same sort of uh, approach has been there. And I think that's uh, pretty much why Steven Gerrard's, I think, overall playing style has also diluted. Because if you look at what he did at Rangers, I know it's a completely different ball game comparing um, what he's doing in the Premier League to the Scottish Premiership. But um, the, his playing style, the, the way Rangers played at uh, under under Gerrard, um, before last season, it's a much more uh, high-pressing system in which um, Rangers had more possession. And now that can be down to the fact that Rangers automatically get about 60% possession in pretty much every Scottish Premiership game. But still, it's almost as if Steven Gerrard has turned into a manager who's closer to Rafa Benitez. Uh, than um, what Liverpool would actually want. And that's no disrespect to Rafa Benitez because uh, Benitez is actually one of Gerard's biggest influences in terms of uh, his coaching and stuff. So I think I'm really worried for Villa. And one of their, uh, I mean, their result against Bournemouth was a bit of a surprise, but I think Newcastle United are one of the teams I was actually pretty impressed with, even though they came up against a Nottingham Forest side who are about to make their 13th signing of the summer, I think. But I think the way Newcastle dominated possession and dominated territory was something, especially a club like United can only dream of. The way Bruno Gumaraes just kept everything ticking. That's, that's it. That in itself shows why clubs like United, Arsenal, even Spurs were sort of looking, uh, looking at Gumaraes. So I think promising signs for Newcastle, not great signs for Villa. Well, um, I turned off my TV when Liverpool drew and went for a walk, so I didn't watch any of the games yesterday. But uh, I guess, in forehand, I think the most surprising result this weekend has to be our game, because it's very unlike us to play as bad as we did and to drop points against the newly promoted side. Uh, we usually win our first game on, in the, under uh, Klopp, and I thought that we would do that yesterday as well, but um, I couldn't really recognize the team so uh, that was a surprise. But um, I've seen some highlights from the other games, and I have to say that I was impressed by Tottenham. Of course, here in Sweden, every newspaper are writing a lot about Dejan Kudusevski. Mm. And um, it, I was um, actually I was a bit happy to see him uh, start in that way because he struggled a bit when he played for our national team. Of course, I guess it says a bit about the quality of the players he has around him when he plays for Sweden as well. But um, uh, I thought that he might be... Uh, suited for the bench now that you signed uh, Richarlison during during off-season, but um, based on what he did uh, yesterday, I don't think he will start on the bench in too many games. I think Spurs can be a big threat this season, maybe not for the title, but um, they will be a lot closer this season than they lost. Uh, to see Manchester United struggle wasn't a big surprise, uh, especially against Graham Potter's Brighton. Uh, it will take a while for Ten Hag to turn things around, and even though he's a good manager, they need a few more additions to the squad before they can be a threat. Christian Eriksson is a good signing, but uh, when I look at the squad, I think they lack a really good defensive midfielder. And uh, then there is the situation around Cristiano Ronaldo that uh, 
I think that they will need they will need to solve soon if they want to have a good season. There were a few teams that played a bit worse than I thought. Maybe I'm a bit worried about Southampton this season. They started well against Spurs, but uh, in the end was a big loss. And uh, as a Liverpool supporter, I don't really like to see Steven Gerrard struggle at uh, Aston Villa. So there are a few teams that, uh, of course, it's one game, so it's hard to jump to any conclusions. But um, there are a few teams that I think uh, it will uh, struggle in the start of the season. And uh, hopefully this was, was the last time Liverpool struggled in the first month. Yeah, definitely surprising Liverpool not start off particularly well, though I'm sure people saw, is it six straight season openers that Salah's now scored in? Um, which is just an, an, an absurd stat. Also largely doesn't mean anything, but, but is pretty impressive nonetheless. Um, the other big thing that we talked about coming into the season was going to be this uh, change to the substitutions rule, where now you're going to have those five substitutes, a, a big uh, argument against this was that it would just kind of make the last 15 or so minutes of every match a disjointed mess. And I was just wondering if you felt like that occurred in your matches this weekend. Uh, n- not in our game, but it certainly I think I agree with you. I think I think it's going to be down to the rhythm of each game and, and how uh, delicately balanced it might be going into those last 10, 10 or so minutes. Um, at the end of the day, you know, it, it, it's 11 against 11 and the manager is going to put the 11 on the pitch that he thinks gives him the best chance of getting something from the game as it stands, whether that's, you know, nicking a winner or, or, or saving a draw. I mean, for example, United uh, bringing on three subs today right at the, at the end felt like a, a pretty desperate kind of throw of the dice. But since you're only a goal down and anything can happen in, in 30 seconds, you know, I, I think, as you say, that sort of disruption might well become the norm in those in those sorts of circumstances. Uh, and especially if it, if it turns out that managers keep players back who might have had more of an, an opportunity to influence the game, uh, you know, if they're if they're brought on earlier. I, I think it's just one of those one of those things where we're just going to have to watch uh, and see how the patterns emerge as, as as the season goes on. But I think at this stage, probably the only thing that you can say for sure is, is that it's the richer clubs that are going to have this, the greater squad depth that, 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 that can benefit from something like that. Yeah, I pretty much agree there because I think when, um, uh, after the first lockdown, I think Sean Dyche was the only manager who was sort of against the five subsidies rule and Jurgen Klopp sort of came out and um, said that uh, why Sean Dyche was sort of against that so that uh, five substitutes rule. But I think this time around, I think the reason why the rules been put in is because of the World Cup. And uh, I mean, they could pretty much be using and using that as an excuse as well, because uh, Premier League is trying to move to more towards an American model now. And I mean, they just use the World Cup thing to say that we can have the five substitutes rule now because the players will be more tired because uh, once the World Cup ends and just when the World Cup's about to start, so let uh, the managers and the teams rotate more often. Um, even though that's that's a fair sort of idea, but I think uh, speaking for a completely completely from a United perspective, United don't really have the squad depth as of now um, to have five fit substitutes ready. 
Um, and we saw that uh, in the game today where Garnacho came on, Anthony Langa came on, and the substitutes were pretty much uh, pointless. There was I couldn't really see a point of a point of making those substitutions apart from the fact that the players that actually came off weren't really having great games. But yeah, I mean the other the other way that we can look at it is the fact that say if someone like Alejandro Garnacho himself, he will get more of a chance to play. So technically, it allows the younger players to play more, even for the lesser sides. Um, I mean, even for the not the top six, the teams outside of the top six, those teams will have more of a chance to play the younger players. Uh, and that's where I think um, uh, the lesser teams will be able to use their academies more. I mean, that's more for a longer term, not for just this season, as it will allow, you know, the younger players to play more, even if it's for just, say, 10 minutes or 15 minutes, you never know. Younger players, um, if they are in that bout of confidence playing from the uh, under-23s games, you never know when they can come up with something special. And I think this will help them a lot. Um, I didn't think it was an issue when we played. Uh, I mostly like the change to five subs, and I don't think that it will be a problem. There are so many other things that uh, disturbs me when it comes to the final 15 or 10 minutes of the game, especially how we they, uh, play the added on time. And uh, I don't think that a few more subs will be a problem, at, at least not for, for me. Uh, hopefully this will benefit offensive football and mostly lead to fewer injuries during the season. Since uh, football restarted after the pandemic break, there are many players who have played a huge amount of games and this season, as you mentioned, we have this strange winter World Cup. So um, if the change to five subs can give the players a bit more rest, I think it is good for the league as a whole and for the quality of football. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, it's also good to give the younger players a bigger chance to play because if you have maybe three or four young players on the bench and you have and when you have 30 minutes left of the game and you lead by three or four goals, you can give them a chance to play Premier League football and then that should be good for the younger players in the league. Hopefully this uh, change uh, won't disturb the game so much, but I don't, I'm not so worried about it being a problem because there are, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there are other things when it comes to the end of football games that, uh, that we need to solve instead. Gotcha. All right, uh, we'll take a quick break and then we'll be back with club-specific questions for each of our guests. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
All right, and we are back, Steve. We'll start off talking about Tottenham, who, as an aside, are currently top of the table. Um, but I just wanted to talk to you about this first match on the whole. Obviously, there's been loads of positivity with Spurs, with the way last season ended, with, as you mentioned at the top of the show, so many signings, so many impactful signings, and so many of them signed early. All really, really good vibes. Obviously, the tour and all of that went really well in Korea. Outside of the one final loss to Jose Mourinho's Roma. (laughs) Pretty much everything has been good news since about April for Tottenham. Uh, And I was just curious how important you think it is to start the the season off on the foot that they did. Obviously, a big 4-1 win to kind of keep that momentum going from all of that, that positive feeling and vibe. Absolutely. I think it's a huge confidence booster. I think just just mentioning the Roma game, by the way, uh, one of the interesting things was Conte's quote afterwards when he said about how uh, Spurs and Roma are pretty much in the same uh, in the same band when it comes to their relationship to the to the big clubs in their country, that they're basically trying to upset the apple cart in both uh, uh, Britain or England and Italy. And uh, and I thought I thought that was exactly right. I mean, much was made of the, the the personal rivalry between Conte and Mourinho, but I think in a way, if you look at the structures of the two teams and how they're placed uh, with regard to uh, you know shaking up the the, the established order uh, in their respective leagues, I think that was an important an important point. Yeah, and no, I, I absolutely agree, and I think you know the the expectations that Spurs fans have set for this season are going to be one of those things that I think divides people into into camps very quickly if you know if we have a if we have a bad spell the the, the tendency will be oh it's same old spurs we're going to bottle it but I I think there is this this sense that as I said in my first answer I think that all the pieces seem to be in place and if we can't do it if we can't make a, a significant uh, attack on on the top three, or uh, you know, a significant inroad into the Champions League this season. Uh, I think there there's there's something deeper about the psychology of the club that if you think back to the past few seasons, uh, leaving aside the the Champions League when we got to the final of the Champions League, which as I, I mentioned, I think was a a classic overachievement, and then there was the the resulting failure to invest in the playing side immediately after that, which which took us in a direction that, that eventually brought us back to where we are today. But I, I do think there is now the sense that we've conquered that idea that, that we are our own worst enemy. Uh, and I don't think Spurs really feel any more. We, we're entitled to go into this season with some confidence. Uh, and the way we play, when we play at our best, when everything clicks, and especially I think what we saw yesterday, what we learned from yesterday's game, was we can click, the team can click, even if the two keystone players, Son and Kane, are not firing. And and that's kind of a really important way to think about how the collective responsibility of the club uh, it, it has changed and the mindset has changed. And you have to say that's down to Conte and that's down to the players that he has believed in, the players like uh, Romero, for example, and Eric Dyer, who's reborn under Conte, Ben Davis, for example, absolutely, uh, you know, night and day to to how 
the way in which those players were regarded as journeyman players before, and now they're they're integral to how Conte puts this team together. Um, I I think we're we're at a position where our our confidence and our expectations are born of entitlement, an entitlement this year that yes, we've we've made this final investment that we've we've always been calling on on Enoch to do, and now we've nobody to blame but ourselves if it doesn't work. And I, I honestly do think it's going to work this time. I think we're going to we're going to solidify our position in the top three. I think we're going to uh, make a good fist at uh, at playing in Europe. And and you know, we'll. Uh, I'm more optimistic at the start of a season than I can remember being for a long time, Kevin. And you've known me for a long time. <laughs> uh, yeah, that is definitely saying something. And I I do agree. I think that's very well said. I think before every season. Every fan base feels excited and have these aspirations of what they could do this year. Um, and I'm sure people have heard, as you mentioned earlier in the show, Spurs for like the last six years be like, top four in a cup run. Um, <laughs> but this time it does really feel like uh, it would be a disappointment if we didn't do it, not overreaching if we did. Um, you mentioned briefly there the, the Sun and Kane thing. Son himself was asked about whether or not it's a good thing that, that Tottenham can put together four goals in a performance like that, even when the two of them aren't the ones scoring the goals. I assume you also view that as a very positive thing for the season? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I don't think... I mean, I think it was Thomas earlier mentioned about uh, what Kulisevsky's role is going to be now that Richarlison has arrived. I, th- I, I don't think it's a, a one or the other scenario. I think you, you're, you're going to find um, Richarlison gets his gets his starts uh, probably in relief of Kane at some point. Um, but, you know, it, it gives us, it gives Conte a certain flexibility that he can use. Uh, he can use Richarlison across any of those front three positions. It's not just uh, Kulisevsky that, that uh, would be at risk, I think, from, uh, from Richarlison. Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's, it's a matter of uh, Kulisev, or I'm sorry, Conte has assembled a squad that's essentially interchangeable. You can you can move the pieces around, um, you know, with Basuma and Bentoncourt and and uh, even Oliver Skip when he, he's obviously he's been very unlucky with injury recently. But when he gets back to full fitness, uh, it gives us lots of options within the midfield. Uh, I, I mean, I think you know, I, I would have liked us to add James Madison. I really, uh, you know, I did feel that he's probably the most talented uh, English midfielder at the moment. And I, I think if there was a possibility that he might have ended up with us, that would have that would have given us a, a, a tremendous uh, boost. But but I'm very happy with Basuma. I, I, I like what he brings to the um, to the squad. Uh, but yes, I mean, this is this is the broadest talented squad that I think we've had for forever, really, when you th- almost, I mean, going back to uh, Bale, Modric, Vandervaart, uh, w- w- when we had, when we had this sort of talent that we had in that, in that lineup, um, the potential within the combinations of this group of players, I think is tremendous. And I think we should all, all Spurs fans should be tremendously optimistic for, for what Conte can do this year. Yeah, optimism, maybe not exactly what's happening uh, at the next club we're going to talk about, which is Manchester United here with Cause. Um, not the start you would have wanted to the season, but I was just curious your thoughts on the first match under Ten Hag. Was there anything interesting or positive that you pulled from either how you set up or, or individual performances that are a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, I think especially the second half where we sort of look much more stable in position. Um, I think 
in the first 10 15 minutes Harry Maguire and Lisandro Martinez had so much room to work in and a lot of space to progress the ball which they actually did and that was one of the positives from the game and uh, in the first half we didn't really have that midfield cover which we haven't actually had over the last two years or something but we didn't have that in the first half but in the second half Ten Hag made the change for having Christian Eriksen to play as a deepest midfielder which actually Antonio Conte tried at Inter uh, when he was uh, in Italy uh, that change sort of worked pretty well and Ericsson didn't just sort of ha- help um, Martinez and Maguire have an extra man in front of them who can cover the space which was between them, but he allowed United to dictate play and control play, which hasn't really happened for United since Nemanja Matic used to be uh, that sort of tempo dictator from deep. And Ericsson actually did a pretty decent job at that, and he was probably United United's best player. Although people in social media have said that uh, Martinez, this Maguire, that I think they had pretty solid games, uh, had a pretty solid game, especially in the second half. Uh, I think apart from that, I didn't really see too many positives. Uh, I think Marcus Rashford was decent, but not decent in front of goal. Bruno Fernandes was wasteful. Um, Luke Shaw was probably one of the worst players. Um, I think Diogo Dalo was decent. But yeah, I think the, the three I mentioned will probably. Um, one of the best three United players out there. And I think largely because of that, since Ten Hag wants United to build from the back, um, that has to be the cornerstone of it. Uh, although David De Gea had a pretty poor game. Um, and I don't think he should be uh, trusted by Ten Hag anymore. Uh, I, I mean, I don't think he should have been trusted by Ralph Ragnick either. But that's a completely different debate. Uh, but I think the fact that that uh, the, the 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 centre-backs and the most deepest midfielder actually sort of played quite well together is a big positive going forward. Yeah, Eriksen has always been a lot more complete of a player than I think people think he is. I remember uh, there was a period where he covered the most distance in a whole season for Tottenham, and everybody just thinks of him as like like a Vondervaart, like like Steve mentioned, just sitting in the pockets, just creating, shooting from distance. But he, he does provide a lot more than that, so good yeah. to hear that he had such a good performance for you today um you mentioned it earlier as well it's obviously a very big media narrative is is really what have manchester united been doing uh in the market thus far Uh, i saw somebody else ask the question if if united were going to be forced into the transfer market after a result like this you're already kind of in the market (laughs) pretty heavily um but i was just curious if you think this could make things a little bit more rushed or more difficult um, after a result like this, or if you think there really is going to be kind of a changing of process and viewing more the long term under Ten Hag rather than just trying to patch holes for the season, I think they're already patching up holes because I think this this isn't a sort of a reactionary move after the game. This actually happened yesterday, where United made an offer for Marco Arnautovic at Bologna. I mean, I'm a fan of Marco Arnautovic, the footballer, but I'm not a fan of Marco Arnautovic, the character, because he's mm-hmm. a massive racist. Um, and the fact that he's a very Odio Nigalo sort of signing, which United promised that they won't be making once Igalo left. And they've promised that we are now working towards a long-term football structure. And that is a very anti uh, sort of signing at this point, um, especially when you look at what West Ham has signed in Gianluca Scamaca and the way he suits how United want to play under Ekten Hagen, how Hugo Eketike has gone to PSG. There were striker options that United could have looked at, but they didn't. And now we've 
we are looking at a Cristiano Ronaldo who doesn't fit the system, wants to leave, and, and Anthony Martial is injured. That's pretty much how United have been operating, where they promise that there's going to be a change in the way uh, recruitment is going to be done, but they've, as always, spent some two, three months going after Frankie de Jong when he actually doesn't want to move to United. Um, and they've lost out to uh, PSG for Fabian Ruiz. They've lost out to Vitinha for, to again, PSG. Renato Sanchez has gone to PSG. There's loads of midfield of which they could have signed, but they barely sort of cared to act, and they're now left with Scott McTominay, who had one of his worst United performances. Uh, and that's pretty much it. I mean, it's, it looks pretty bleak. Um, but yeah, we've still got three weeks to go, um, even though that's generally a very negative sign for United because they have shown that they have a bad habit of, you know, panic buying, um, which I think they will now. Um, they probably will go after someone like Ruben Neves when he'll probably cost something like 50 to 60 million. Uh, I mean, I just don't know about what United are applying to. And, I, and, I, and as Gary Neville sort of said on the post-match show on Sky Sports that he had nothing to say about the uh, Marco Arnautovic tumors, I think probably that's the same, same, same is the case with me as well. Yeah, and we'll see if there is like kind of a fan backlash enough to prevent it, which is obviously what happened with Gattuso's link to, to Tottenham as yeah. manager last season. Would not be shocked if if United backed out of that potential deal because of the backlash that could come. Um, you mentioned Ronaldo there. It's very uh, boring at this point, but just gut feeling. Is he there for the season or is this like a Juve thing where he starts on the bench the first week and he's gone by the second? I think it's, it's, it's a bit funny because I think... Ronaldo is just trying to check out the vibes at United at first. Uh, he's just trying to play a bit, uh, have a look around and see how the club's doing, how Ten Hag's uh, thing is working out. And depending on that, depending on how he feels, uh, I think Jorge Mendes is going to try to get him a move in the last week of the transfer window as they did with Juventus. Because I think... Uh, the issue at this point is the fact that Ronaldo absolutely wants to leave. And United, the only reason United want to keep him is the fact that he gets them the revenue and the attention on, on FIFA 23 and those sort of video games and amongst the uh, teenagers who've just started watching football. <laughs> I mean, that's probably the sole reason United are trying to keep Ronaldo there. And the second issue is that no club is willing to pay United the fee. So it comes down to the fact that United either terminate his contract, which United probably won't do because they want the revenues off his, off his name, off his shirts, or someone pays the transfer fee. And the second one is just as unlikely because if a club comes in and pays the transfer fee, they would have to pay something like 700k wages and Jorge Mendes' agent commission, which is quite impossible, especially when the transfer window is running down and teams are short of budgets. Um, in Italy, people did say that Sporting Lisbon still seems like a possibility, but that has sort of died off. Uh, I mean, I don't want him to stay at the club. I pretty much wanted his contract terminated about a week ago or something. But yeah, I, I, as things stand, it seems like he'll settle for the Europa League. 
Yeah, and then we'll just see him at like age 45 playing for Red Star Belgrade as he tries to add to that <laughs> Champions League goal tally. Yeah, probably. <laughs> All right, uh, we'll come to you, Thomas, now to talk about Liverpool. Uh, I'm sure you also imagined a better start to the season for you, but hard to imagine a much better start for Darwin Nunez, who, despite not getting the start, uh, actually leads the league in shots on target already with three. He's one of only five players to contribute to two goals. Um, and again, just did that in a little over 30 minutes. Uh, how positive are, are you reading into that early performance in him? And how many starts do you think he'll make this season? Uh, well, um, first of all, I was very excited to see a sign Darwin Nunez because when we played him in the Champions League last season, he was uh, he was very good. He can create chances on his own against our back four, who was uh, very, very good. He scored goals and he was... Um, he was very dangerous. He's um, quick, strong, good at, good with his feet, strong in the air. So I really like that signing. And to see him uh, get get on the pitch yesterday and make that kind of performance was, of course, very good. He was uh, he was our best player yesterday and didn't play more than was it, was it 35 minutes or something like that. Um, it was a goal. He's a goal scorer, and you can see that his his uh, his confidence is strong because. Um, Minutes before he scored that back heel goal, he missed a chance with a back heel in almost the yeah. same way, and he and he tried this and he tried the same way in a few minutes later, and then he scored. So um, he's uh, he feels like mentally strong striker, and uh, I would be surprised if he doesn't start against Palace because we have uh, Jota injured and uh, Firmino looked didn't look at like uh, the old Roberto Firmino yesterday. He looked quite slow and. Uh, didn't have the technique that we're used to. So I think that Nunes will start against Palace because now that we drew the first game, we need to win against Palace because we'll soon play Manchester United away and uh, we don't want to come to that game without winning. So I think he will start uh, right away. And uh, it feels like he and uh, like Nunes and Salah is um, already starting to get to know each other quite good because um, even though the assist to Salah's goal maybe was a bit uh, a bit lucky, he was in the right right position when the ball got there, and he had the had the time to give the ball to Salah. So Nunes is a is a different kind of striker than we are used to because, as I mentioned Firmino earlier, he was more of the kind of striker who dropped a bit further down the pitch and uh, and uh, tried to create chances for others. Nunes will be the man who scores, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if he scores more goals than Salah this season. And uh, Instead, we will see Salah with a bit more assists than we usually do, because um, I think we will see us play in a different kind of way when uh, Nunes is uh, getting to know the, his teammates better. And um, he's, he's also very young, so I'm, I'm really happy with this signing. And we talked about this in um, our Swedish podcast the other week, that we have, now we're coming into this season with... Uh, We've talked in so many years about what will happen when we don't have Mania Firmino Sala anymore. And now we can look at our starting eleven, and we have Diaz, we have Nunes and Sala starting. And we, we, haven't, we haven't had any problems with scoring goals, even though we have lost two of the big names up front. Of course, Firmino is still at Liverpool, but uh, he's not the same player as he was maybe two seasons ago. Um, Maybe it's the injury last season that made him uh, start this season a bit slower, but I'm a bit worried that we've seen the best of um, Roberto Firmino and um, 
that makes it even more important that Diogo Jota comes back from his um, injury soon because um, even though Nunes was great yesterday, we need uh, more players up front who can score goals. Gotcha. Yeah, definitely an impressive performance, and you will definitely need depth, especially if you plan on playing in literally every available football match this year, <laughs> as you did last. Um, at the other end of the pitch, a little surprising to see Van Dyke maybe not at his best after all those years. But I, I was more concerned with Alexander Arnold, who we've seen not be the best in the air before. Obviously, Mitrovic's uh, goal came from jumping just directly over the back of Alexander Arnold, who never really got off the ground. I mean, obviously, he's incredible. Uh, going forward, he's still pretty decent defensively, but his aerial ability really seems to be an issue. Do you think that's a thing that, that they'd be focused on or just focusing on his strengths and just like, hey, sometimes he's just going to get headers dunked over him? Yeah, well, uh, if you put him one-on-one against uh, Mitrovic, he, w- he will lose in the air. Um, many many defenders will lose. Maybe Van Dijk and Van Tip can win, win that duel, but Alexander Arnold won't. Of course, he's, he's not as good defensive as he's going forward, but um, I don't think they will focus a lot on that. The problem in that situation to me was that they, they had the time to give Mitrovic the ball from the left side, and I think that our left side should have stopped the ball before it came to the situation where Mitrovic is one-on-one against Alexander Arnold because... Um, that is a situation that he will win. And of course, Alexander Arnold could have done something better. I think at least he could have uh, jumped so that Mitrovic couldn't use his shoulders to, to climb up to the, to the ball. Uh, but uh, I don't think it's a, such a big issue. It was a bad defensive performance from the team in that situation. And if we leave Alexander Arnold with one of the best headers in the league, of course, he will, he will lose. He could, he could have done better, but... Uh, I don't think that uh, I don't think that it will worry Klopp a lot. Gotcha. Yeah, I'm always fascinated to see if people want to like improve the weaknesses or just like mm, let's just not worry about that. Let's just focus on the strengths. <laughs> and obviously, Alexander Arnold has plenty of those. Uh, we'll go from there into Player Watch, where I just wanted to know which new addition to your club or, or to the league in general were you most impressed by this week? Well, I, from a, a Spurs perspective i think we we didn't really get to see enough of the very new players this weekend but uh, i think in terms of how the squad has already uh, changed and developed under conte as i was mentioning earlier i think we will just see kulishevsky romero bentancourt continue to get uh, even better as the season progresses i mean uh, basuma and perisic i think will give us an additional threat and then it really is interesting to see how conte will use richarlison so um so again, that's one of the things that we'll watch over the next few weeks. I, I, elsewhere, <laughs> elsewhere in the league, obviously, it looks like Holland is going to be the story to follow, especially, you know, in terms of how how it might change the way City play. Um, you know, they won the league without him, indeed, you know, without a, a, any genuine centre forward really last year. So just add, adding him to an equation that already includes De Bruyne and Gundogan, you, you know, you'd think would be only a step forward. But um, I think, for, on the other hand, for City, I think the, the jury is still out on uh, on Grealish. Uh, so I think that's going to be uh, it's going to be a storyline to watch as the season unfolds. Um, uh, for Liverpool, I think, as, as Thomas mentioned, Darwin Nunez is going to be a, a lot of fun to watch this season. Uh, and I, I think actually Zinchenko uh, will do very well at Arsenal, and uh, where where he may have a little bit more freedom uh, than he did. 
at City. Um, but, you know, as I was saying earlier, uh, Kev, you know, uh, about the transfer window, all of the top teams have strengthened. So an awful lot is going to come down to the to the chemistry within the squad and and the relationship with the coach. And, and again, with United being the only one of the top teams to start with a new coach, that, you know, that might uh, be another hurdle to them to them getting off to a decent start. But, you know, we'll we'll see how we'll see how things unfold. Yeah, I think for United, it's probably Ericsson. I mean, I'm a bit tempted to say Martinez, but I think Ericsson is probably by far United's best player on the pitch, as I've previously mentioned, largely because of the two different roles that he played. I mean, not just two roles. I think he played three different different roles in in a single game because in the pre-game interview, Ten Hag sort of mentioned that Ericsson will probably be the farthest man up the pitch. But actually, a lot of times off the ball, when United was sort of trying to press forward, it was Bruno Fernandes who was the farthest man up the pitch because he's a really good presser off the ball. And Eriksen was sort of dropping into the number 10 area and allowing um, uh, the others some room to make runs forward. So I think uh, Eriksen sort of pretty much proved what sort of a footballer that he is because I think um, there was a time at Ajax, I think it was his first season at Ajax, where he, I think he set up some sort of a record for covering some sort of a distance as well, Kev. I think not just for the Spurs bit. I think he did that for Ajax as well, because I remember reading this somewhere. I think this was Johan Cruyff's autobiography like five, six years ago, where mm. he specifically mentioned Ericsson saying that he's actually a workhorse. He's never been that, um, as you said, Rafa van der Waard sort of player. He's someone who's always been that sort of a workhorse who is very good at uh, going up and down the pitch. And I sort of always uh, find similarities between him and Miralem Pjanic um, when he went from Roma to Juventus, although they are sort of different in terms of their work rate. But I think uh, the way they've changed as footballers over time is pretty similar because, you know, when Pjanic was at Roma um, in his sort of peak, he was a pure number 10 footballer. And over time, um, by the time he was close to moving to Juventus and at Juventus, he played as the sole defensive midfielder in a 4-3-3 formation as well. So I think Eriksson is probably uh, reaching that sort of stage in his career where he can do all of it uh, and show what he actually was as a footballer. I'm pretty glad that Ten Hag is sort of uh, you know, recognizing that sort of ability because I think if you look at how Eriksson was last season at Brentford, um, he was popping up in the wide areas as well and coming up with really good, I mean, David Beckham-like crosses for Ivan Tony, And that happened pretty much four times in a single game. So I think even if since Ten Hag's systems at Ajax have always been very uh, role-focused in terms of um, the fact that a player is supposed to do one specific thing in terms of, um, let's say, if Dusan Tadic was playing up front, he was just supposed to drag defenses with him. And the others were just supposed to make runs in the spaces that he left behind. And I think that sort of role can also help Ericsson if Eric Ten Hag uses him out wide. And we have, I mean, this is presuming the fact that United sign actually, actually sign a striker who can actually thrive off the crosses that Ericsson can make. So I think he's been a massive signing for United, especially because of the fact that he's come for free. And it's not like he's going to earn too much of money either. And But I think uh, specifically talking about some other players in the Premier League who I was really impressed were, impressed by, I mean, apart from, you know, 
the obvious ones, uh, Darwin Nunez, Holland, Zinchenko, and Gabriel Jesus. Apart from that, I really like Czech Dakota's performance against Arsenal. I think even though that went in a losing cause, I was uh, pretty impressed. I mean, I did watch a fair bit of him at launch last season. And since he's a defensive midfielder, there was a time when I sort of wanted him at United, but United are not smart enough to do stuff like that. So, yeah, he made, I think, three or four really good tackles um, when Arsenal was sort of coming forward and they, uh, Palace were trying to defend the counterattacks. And I think Dukura sort of offers something which Luka Milivojevic doesn't sort of offer because I've always seen Milivojevic to be a very defense-first footballer, whereas Dukure is a complete midfielder. He can offer so much to Palace uh, and pretty much, you know, lay down a marker in that team because I don't think Palace have had this dominating midfielder ever since Mila Yedinak sort of went off. So I think this is probably going to be one of the best moves in the Premier League this season, the Czech decoding moving from Lons to Palace. Uh, well, for, for Liverpool, we haven't made so many new signings this season and uh, I've already mentioned Darwin Nunez. Uh, but um, the other signing that we've made that... Uh, will play in the in the first team this season is Fabio Carvalho. And I think that he was um, interesting to see yesterday as well. He's, uh, of course, still very young and uh, made his first performance in the Premier League. But uh, he looked like he was, uh, he looks like he's ready to play for Liverpool. And he, he reminds me a bit of uh, Filippo Coutinho in the way that he plays. And he, he could have scored in his first touch on the corner in the second half, but um, couldn't hit target. And I think we'll uh, use him quite a lot this season. And it's uh, interesting to see that uh, Klopp already in the preseason and in this game relies a lot both on Harvey Elliott and Fabio Carvalho, who are both very young. And um, they are, they it will be interesting to see what kind of roles he gives to them in the midfield because they are a bit different to the, other, to the players who usually play in midfield at Liverpool, where we always have... Um, Thiago and uh, Fabinho, if they're fit, and um, Jordan Henderson as the starting three. And uh, both Harvey Elliott and uh, Fabio Carvalho are very different to them. And uh, especially Harvey Elliott has been used in midfield, and he was, uh, was that yesterday as well. And uh, you could argue that he is almost like a new addition as well, because um, after the injury last season, he, he wasn't himself. And I think he needed this preseason to come back fit again. And it would be very interesting to see what happens to to those two players because um, I think uh, Fabio Car- Klopp has um, Fabio Carvalho higher up in the rank at Liverpool than than many of us supporter thinks, and that that makes a bit surprised that a player like Alexander Alex Oxford Chamberlain still is at Liverpool because um, I think that he is behind both Harvey Elliott and uh, Fabio Carvalho in the ranking now. Um, and if you look at the other teams in the Premier League, of course. It's impressive to see Holland here in Sweden. They write a lot about him because he's Norwegian, so we've known him for for too many years, it feels like. But of course, he will score many goals for Manchester City. It's just, it's just a question about how many goals he will score because he's a natural goal scorer. And um, sadly, I've, I've lost the names now, but I watched um, Leeds together with my father, and um, there were a few of their new signings that looked interesting, especially in the defence. So I think that they can be interesting to watch this season under Jesse March. And I, I've read that many think that uh, Leeds will fight for relegation. But um, based on their first performance, I think they look more solid than last season. And that was partly up to the new signings. 
Gotcha. Well, we'll leave the show there for now. So if you guys would like to tell folks where they can find you or anything you're working on, that would be a good time. Well, uh, thanks very much for having me back, Kevin. Uh, it was a, a really good conversation uh, with the lads, and, and I'd like to wish everyone, no matter who you support, uh, a good season. Uh, you can you can follow me on Twitter, at Steve McGookin, uh, and if you want to read some of my non-football writing, uh, my blog is over at statesofplayproject.com. Yeah, I'm on Twitter at cos underscore Ponday 17. I've been working on a lot of football culture related pieces. I'm, I've obviously been covering a lot of Serie A and been doing a lot of uh, news, cover, covering a lot of news pieces over at Italian Football News. So yeah, feel free to check that out. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Thomas Nygren. Uh, I write about Liverpool on a Swedish website, lfcsv.se. And uh, I'm a regular at the Total Liverpool podcast. Both sites are both these things are in Swedish. But if you have any Swedish listeners out there, you're much welcome to come and read and listen to what we do. Yep, definitely check out all of those sites, even though Duolingo may or may not be needed to do so. Um, but an absolute pleasure speaking with the three of you today. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. You can find me on Kevroff. You can find the show at EPL Roundtable or by searching EPL Roundtable in all of your podcasting services. But yeah, thanks again to you guys. The Premier League's back. And folks at home, we hope you keep listening. <laughs>